a former journalist and, well, my former boss. Today's guest is a marketing maven who founded her own firm and recently launched Her Passion Project, a podcast that focuses on the major turning points in people's lives when they reach 40. I'm Matt Mowry, editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, founder and president of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. Yes. Your old boss is here. I know. Do we have to like it's be like careful? Old and, and like, does she have a ton of things that like dirt on you? Oh, God, does yes. She dirt? She does? <laughs> okay, good. I pay her monthly. Oh, well, <laughs> right. To distribute the dirt or keep it with herself? <laughs> Depends on my mood. Okay. All right. Got it. Got it. No, that's, um, is, uh, well, I was going to, I was going to ask and maybe I won't, no, I will. Um, as it relates to old bosses, um, how, where would you put her on the scale? Oh, she was good. Yeah. We had, we had a good time. She was good. And I learned a lot from Stephanie. Like she helped me kind of like realize my potential more. Oh. So, you know, I was, uh, you know, kind of a shyer guy and, and. Under Stephanie, I realized like it is okay to let my personality out and to trust. I think to trust myself more, yeah. like try new things. So that was what's good. Yeah, you know. But we've all had the boss. Mm. Like I worked in, I, you know, I've been in journalism my whole life, and you know, journalists are great, but maybe sometimes not always the best boss. <laughs> and I've learned so much from everyone, but I had one editor one day. I was in the newsroom and. He comes up to me, spins my chair around, he corners me at my desk oh my in front God. of the whole newsroom, and he's like, the competition just had this story. And it, it was like a light, fluffy feature. But I mean, it was mm. back in the day, you know, when you had competitive newspapers, like, and it was in my territory. He's like, why didn't we have it? And I'm like, oh. And I looked, and I'm like, <laughs> a sudden relief came over to me. I'm like, we did. It ran two days ago on page two. And he's like, oh, okay, good. And walked away. And I'm like... <laughs> What just happened? What the hell was that? <laughs> and then I learned what I did not want to be when I was in charge of people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there you I go. still learned a lot from that, man. But yeah, I mean, that was, you know, intimidation and fear is sometimes the way people go. And oh. it's not a great method. No, no. How about you? Um, I had a, I had a boss once that, and I was like a, a you know, a punk ass kid. And, um, after working at this place for a while, they fired me one day and I was like mortified, but he <laughs> takes me into like the owner's office, throws his feet up on the desk and then like proceeds to fire me. And there I am this like 17 year old kid. And I was just like, what the hell was that? Like, what do I do now? <laughs> Should I call my mom and have her come pick me up? <laughs> it was, it was, yeah. So I've, I've always, I've often like, I think of that situation and I go, uh, Again, I don't want to be that way with other people. Is that why you work for yourself now? No, (laughs) no, 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 it's not. Oh my God. No, it's not. No, but that was just like, yeah, only slightly traumatizing, you know, but I'll tell you, I learned, you know, um, I learned from another boss, like the, the art of sort of, of customer service and of, um, communicating with the customer. And this is in a retail setting. And it was like, you know, you greet the customer and you make sure that they're all set and you do this and you carry the product for them to the, you know, to the counter and you this. And, and they were like, cause they were at the top of their game, you know? And, and he was, he was probably then like a little bit younger than I am now. Um, but that's just, you know, he was, it was instilled by his dad and that was that. And, um, yeah, learned a lot about, you know, just really good customer service from that guy. So, um, there you go. There you go. And then, you know, he taught communication. And speaking of which, yeah, I think that's a good segue for us to talk to our nice guest today. Nice little zoom right in on our segue here. Uh, our guest this week is Stephanie McLaughlin, principal at Savoie Fair Marketing and Communications. In 2022, she celebrated 15 years of small business ownership. Yay. Big time hands in the air. She has worked as both a member of the media and as a public relations professional. 
She's a founding member of the Manchester Young Professionals Network as well. She graduated magna cum laude from Northeastern University's School of Journalism with a major in journalism and a minor in political science. Stephanie lives in Manchester with her husband Patrick and a rambunctious black cat named Quinn. Professionally, she's confident and optimistic. Personally, she describes herself as sassy and a little ridiculous. So I think this is going to be fun. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Nice guys. to have you. Nice to meet you. It's so nice to be here. It's because nice to meet you as well. clearly you and Matt have, you know, a little history. We have a little history. And I just want to go on record as saying he's being very, very kind at his recollection of me as a boss. No. Well, I mean, that's because he just, you know, he's. it's probably the afternoon he started drinking by now. Yeah, so. yeah. I- <laughs> I think the years have uh, worn off the the, the hard edges of. <laughs> he's, he's forgotten. That was a that was a high learning curve position for me, and wow. I'm not I'm not quite sure I was always as great a boss as he uh, is is giving me credit for. But thank you. Uh, oh, well. you're welcome. And trust me, if you go back to anyone that I have been in charge of, they will have horror stories. So. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> We've all had our learning curves, but no, I mean, I meant every word I said. So, Thank you. Well, you know, let's dive into yeah, it. So let's dive in. You have had this really interesting trajectory in your career over time. What, first of all, what attracted you to the field communications and journalism specifically? Okay. What made you want to go into that? When I was in fourth grade... <laughs> this is a, a, a crystal clear memory. When I was in fourth grade, a teacher passed back, you know, some assignment, writing assignment, and she said, who taught you how to use a comma? And my answer to her was, what's a comma? <laughs> but I had used it correctly in my essay. Ah. So writing just came naturally to mm-hmm. me. And... Um, Telling stories came natural. And um, so putting those things together, uh, there's another crystal clear memory. I was 14 or 15 sitting in my parents' breakfast nook, and my dad was a subscriber to newspapers, very specifically the Boston Globe. And so we had it every day, and I decided I wanted to write for the Boston Globe. Not just newspapers, but I wanted to write for the Boston Globe. So I chose my college 100% based on the co-op program. Mm -hmm. So I went to Northeastern, and by the, I think the first or second half of my sophomore year, I was a co-op at the Boston Globe. And I spent the next four and a half years working for the Globe in different departments. So it was, um, I'm not so much sure it was a choice for me as it was just preordained. That's what I'm good at. I can't do math at all. If it's beyond fingers and toes, I'm lost. Um, So writing and communications just is innate for me. Cool, cool. So what... um and I literally, I really don't know this answer, which is why I'm asking you. But um, in terms of your path to then end up at what is now Milliard Communications and the magazine, um, what was what was that path, and how did you end up there? Were you in some way associated already, or no? No, um, I spent a dozen years in Boston. I went to college and then stayed for several years after. I worked for uh, Mayor Tom Menino for mm-hmm. a number of years. So when I was in Boston, I had this great resume of working for the Boston Globe for four and a half years, then working for Tom Menino for five years. Mm-hmm. And then I moved home. And when I moved home, I was working at a small ad agency, PR agency down in Newburyport. Then comes uh, 9-11. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that they shed some staff of which I was one. Uh. So now here I am, I'm living at home and I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do. And um, I think I just applied for an ad and an aunt of mine, I think, knew the owner at the time Mm -hmm. and put in a good word. And so the owner of the magazine at the time brought me on as editor, but I think she had in her head some machinations of within six or 12 months, she knew she was going to sell the magazine. She knew she'd need someone to be uh, in that sort of leadership position of mm-hmm. running the, or, the organization because yeah. yeah. she knew the guy she was going to sell it to was a hands-off kind of guy. So she kind of had this, I think she sold the magazine with, with the promise of, hey, look, I just brought on this gal and she's going to be that person mm. for you. So it was a stroke of luck and a, a nice, you know, put a good word in by one of my aunts and <laughs> it all kind of came together. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, and then was it, did you leave 
the magazine to then st- start Savoir Fair? No. Oh, no. Okay. The, path so, is, okay. the path is a little twisty. I love those paths. Go for it. I left the magazine on this uh, quixotic uh, quest to actually purchase my own magazine. Oh. I had met a guy. He had come in. He was doing some sales training. Do you even remember this? Yes. Okay. He was doing some sales training for, the, for our team at the magazine, and he and I kind of hit it off, and... And he had a client who was down in the D.C. area whose son owned a magazine, and it was kind of, he was kind of a dilettante, so he, it was just a plaything for him, mm. and I think he was losing interest. So this guy was just going to shut it all down and throw it all away. Oh, my God. And, and this contact said, put us together and said, well, if, what if you could get some money for it? I mean, she can't give you that much money, mm. but... And so I... I I, I did as much as I could while I was working for the magazine. And then there was a point at which it was either, you know, pursue or not pursue. Mm-hmm. So I had to give my notice at the magazine and I pursued that um, to a place where I decided that it was not the right decision. There were too many things that were, that were just not coming in right. And, and I'm sure... Uh, you know, 75% of it was inexperience on my part. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this guy might have wanted like, I don't know, $10,000 for me over oh, some number Lord. of years. And for me at the time, I had nothing. So I'm thinking that's a, that's a huge number. And also we were going to take the magazine. We were going to move it to New Hampshire. We were going to kind of change the focus. Like it was just, there were too many loose threads that weren't coming together well enough for me to say, I'm going to go ahead and do this. Yeah. So actually saying no was one of the hardest decisions I had ever made. It was harder than leaving my full-time job. It Mm. was because I left my full-time job to do this. Right. But then two or three months later, it was like, this isn't coming together. (laughs) So I left that and um, not too long after ended up at uh, one of the law firms, um, one of the, the law firms here in, uh, in New Hampshire and spent a couple of years uh, as their director of client development, mm. which I thought was a great position for me. I loved the job description, mm-hmm. but it came clear pretty quickly that the fit of the organization was not a good one for me. And I think, you know, that's an interesting thing that comes, come, pops up is knowing, you know, you pursue a, 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 an avenue and then knowing when it's not the right fit. And, but there's so many people that get stuck. And one of the things that you always manage to do is that, okay, this didn't work out maybe the way I wanted to. You've always, you know, find that other path. How do you know the right no? And how, you know, so many people don't pick themselves up dust themselves off and go, okay, what's the next thing? What is it that's inside of you that allowed you to not only do that, but then go on to something better? Wow. Um, I'm going to answer that question two ways. Number one, I don't always know. And the law firm position was a great example of, I got recruited by somebody I had known since I was a kid to go to this law firm. And for... A year, it was a spectacular position. And I thought, I'm going to be here for 15, 20 years. This is, this is it. I love it. And there were some changes in the leadership of the, of the organization. And very quickly, it became clear that I was not a um, respected professional. They just wanted me to do what they wanted me to do. Oh, mm-hmm. boy. And, and it, it, it became a, a, a bad situation that I couldn't, I didn't see. And it it spiraled. It just circled the drain for a long time. It was, you know, they had me off my game. I was making mistakes. I'd get Mm. in trouble. I was lost my confidence to the point where one day the managing partner of the firm walked into my office with the HR director. And I was like, hey, guys, what's going on? Hey, guys. I mean, no feet up on the desk. (laughs) Yeah. But Um, but he might as well have been. He he sat down on the opposite side of my desk and he said, Mm. um, so we're going to terminate you. And I, I, honest to God, laughed at him. I said, are you kidding? <laughs> like I had no idea. Uh-huh. Wow. I, I had no idea had gotten that bad. Right. But of course you can see that in hindsight. So I didn't know that that was, I, I did know with the magazine, I didn't know with the law firm, mm. um, 
But I, I think that you get to a point where there's nothing else you can do but keep going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I left the law firm, um, a couple of things happened. One, I had bought a condo about six months before, so I had some bills, but not inordinate bills. So I said to myself, I'm just going to do some freelance work mm. and see what happens. At the same time, I started working with a career coach, our old friend, Sheila Cabot. Mm-hmm. And I thought that she and I were working on finding me my next J-O-B. And so I've got these two parallel paths. I'm going to do some freelance work and I'm working with Sheila. And if this takes maybe five or six months and I'm getting great feedback on freelance work because my network is great in Manchester and the surrounding areas because I was at the magazine for a couple of years. I was at this law firm for a couple of years. I had been a co-founder of the Young Professionals Network. Mm-hmm. All three things very high profile in that period in time. So I knew great. I knew a ton of people who were like, yeah, communications, event, you know, we, you can write stuff. Well, about five or six months, four or five months later, Sheila and I were working together on a project and, and I, I looked up at her and I said, well, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could do this. And she basically looked at me and kind of said, welcome, because (laughs) I had no idea that I could be an entrepreneur. I had no, as a matter of fact, a couple of years earlier, I had thought about it and I thought, but what would anybody pay me to do? Right. The doubt that seeps in. Right. Mm. The the lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that I was the only one in my life that was surprised that I was going to start my own business. I remember clearly talking to Matt and saying, hey, I'm going to start my own business. And he looked at me and he went, yeah, and? I mean, something to that effect. So supportive. Like, well, of course you so are. Supportive. Right, right. It, it, <laughs> okay. It was, it was like, well of, it, well, of course you are. Uh-huh. It, my parents no weren't question. surprised. There's no question. People who I used to work with weren't surprised. There was no question. But it took me that exercise to see it. Mm. Why do you think you were surprised that you had an entrepreneurial spirit in you? Oh, well, what I have learned that I did not know at the time is that I have a much greater tolerance for risk than I ever thought I did. Mm. Now, when I started my business, the there's no safety net when you own your own business. But when I started my business, we I wasn't that high off the ground, right? It was just I need to pay my mortgage for my condo, mm. which in you know 2007 was n- not that much money. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, if I did a couple of freelance jobs a month, I could make my mortgage. And of course, my parents are across town, so I could go there for dinner. Like y- you know, it, there, <laughs> there's ways all, to make it work. Yeah. There was a family safety net. Let me be really yeah, clear about yeah, that. My good. parents were there to help me, but there's no you know, professional safety net. So mm-hmm. what I realized over the years as the business grew and as I had been there longer and as it became much harder to consider going back, it was that I was much more tolerant of risk than I ever thought I was. Mm. And so that I think is a big part of the, cool. the answer. Cool. And then as you're freelancing, what clicks? What is that point where you got to that aha moment of, oh, wait a minute, I'm already doing it mm. why not formalize this like what made you go say all right I'm, I'm ready to go down this path um uh jeff baker at image four really yeah <laughs> so <laughs> no that particular person um we I, I went to so this was 2007 and i went to the tri-city expo that fall oh gosh yeah and was just wandering up and down, you know, saying hello to people and and looking for some freelance work. And I got to Jeff Baker's booth and I was talk chatting with him and telling him that I was out on my own and that I was doing freelance work. And he said to me, you mean I can get you now? And, and that was like a jaw dropper for me. Like, oh, you, you don't want to hire me as a full-time employee to your company, but you would like to have a piece of me at your disposal. Mm. That was a that was a jaw dropper for me and made me realize that I was on the right track. And of course I had some other friends. I had friends who were hiring me. Nick mm-hmm. Sogu at Silvertech was hiring me um, for projects, you know, at, at his company. Um, 
long before, you know, my business turned into anything approximating his. And not that it does, but they're, you know, relevant to each other. Uh-huh. But 15 years later, mm-hmm. you're employing people, you're, you've got, you've built a brand. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, there, there's a lot to delve into that. So, um, but, but we'll do that in just a moment. We're going to do that in just a moment. We'll be right back. SkyTerra is one of the nation's top 50 Microsoft cloud solutions provider, and we're proud to be headquartered right here in New Hampshire. Please visit us at www.skyterratech.com to see how we help companies with their IT needs so they can concentrate on their business. All right, we're back with Stephanie McLaughlin. Let's dive. Let's dive. So... You went in, I mean, you didn't just start a business. You started a marketing business in Manchester. There's lots of competition in that area. Tons. Oh my God. So what did you do to help differentiate yourself? And what was your vision for what your firm was going to be? When I started, I had no vision for my firm. When I started, it was just me and the talents that I had on board that I was hiring out to the world. So I am a writer. I, so I could do, you know, uh, write website copy. I could write white papers. I could write, you know, all kinds of stuff. I had done a bunch of event work, as you know, at, mm-hmm. mil- at uh, Business New Hampshire Magazine. So I helped plan some events. So for the first couple of years, it was just me and what I could do. And then the business started to evolve as I came across people who could augment my skill set. So my designer developer, Jana Hartley, who has been with me for over a decade now, I crossed paths with her and we started just collaborating on little things here and there. And then it, it became that we could, you know, we realized we could work together. We realized our skills were, you know, very complementary to each other. And that kept happening over time to the point where now I actually have a content writer and I do almost no writing because now I have to manage the business, right? And do the sales and there's all kinds of other stuff that goes with it. So I, I Over time, I have found great people to add to the team, which has grown what we can offer the marketplace. And that has really just happened organically. I've really just followed my nose on that. Um, And I find following my nose for me personally makes me much more successful than putting a dart on the board and just, you know, digging and digging and digging until I get there. That, That I've tried that and that hasn't worked for me as well. So what's the biggest lesson that you've learned during your entrepreneurial venture that has led you to maybe go to that next level? Well, I think it's what um, what I just said to you. It's the organic piece for me. There are there are lots of people, and and there are um, contemporaries of mine and other owners of you know agencies in New Hampshire who have been. I think comparatively, I would say much more driven, much more, you know, uh, you know, pedal to the metal, let's go, let's chase it. And I find when I chase, things get, things dry up. And when I allow, that's when, for me, things go really well. And there was a, there was a great example of this a couple of years ago. Um, I got sick a number of years ago with Lyme disease mm-hmm. and had to limit. It really limited how much I could work. And so for the beginning of that, it was really terrifying of like, oh God, now I can't be there. And, Mm. you know, thank God I have great people and this great team that's with me, but what's going to happen when I can't dig, 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 push, push, push? Well, it turned out I had one of my best years. And the couple of years since, as I've been sick, have been better and better and better. So it's just a real lesson for me that there are different kinds of entrepreneurs. There are different kinds of people in the world. And the pedal to the metal, push it, go works for a lot of people and they're wildly successful. For me, the organic and the allowing and the just being who I am is what makes me successful. Nice. 
Nice. I'm doing these big head shakes because I feel <laughs> I feel the same exact way and in, in, in my business, you yeah. know, and, and so I'm that's why I'm doing the big yeah, the yeah. big slow head shakes going, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Totally can relate to what to what you've you've experienced and you've done. Um so Savoir Faire does what for who? Hmm. So we work with small and medium-sized businesses. Right now they're mostly in New England. Um and I like to say um, we help them reach the audiences that count most towards their success. So by and large, my best clients and the clients who have been me, with me the longest are privately owned businesses, still owned, still operated by a business, uh, by the business owner or mm-hmm. by an empowered general manager. So mm-hmm. there's somebody there who's really making the actual decisions. Right. And they've done their marketing in-house or on their own for a long time, so which means they've done either what they know or what they're comfortable mm-hmm. with. And that's gotten them to X point, right. but either they're stuck or they're at a plateau or they can't seem to quite get what's next. Uh-huh. And so we, my team and I bring not only the marketing strategy, the big picture, you know, what should we do next? I become your CMO. And my team and I become your marketing department, and we're going to add a ton of sophistication to your program. We're going to add a ton of measurement and analysis of what's happening and figuring out which are the weeds and which are the flowers, and we're going to help you grow the business. Nice. So marketing, obviously so central to today's landscape and to succeed and differentiate yourself. So your 15 years of working with various size companies on their programs, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see companies make when it comes to their marketing and their assumptions of what they're doing? (laughs) Here it comes. I think, I mean, there's all kinds of mistakes. There's all kinds of little mistakes that people make, which is fine. I think the biggest thing that hangs people up is the, the attitude of what got us here will get us there. Mm. Meaning if we just double down on the things we've been doing, then, then surely at some point the horse is going to giddy up and it doesn't necessarily work that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, this may have been the, like the question before your question, but I want to, I want to dig into something. How do you and your team define marketing because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people out there that say oh I do marketing mm-hmm. or you know that sort of thing how in 2022 with all the resources with all of the, the analytics with all the stuff and the and the foundational things that we need to do as a business do you define marketing mm, god that's a great question i mean marketing is so much these days and there are so many tools i'll tell you what my team and i do mm-hmm. We, I like to say we sit at the crossroads of digital and traditional. Mm. So most of my team is old enough, Matt, you know we are, (laughs) that we go back to- 30-something. Right? We go back (laughs) to traditional methods of marketing and advertising. Mm -hmm. So whether that's branding, whether that's signage, collateral, advertising, right? So we can do that. Right. You don't start at digital, for example. Well- well, unless mostly it's we do. Mostly okay. we do. So for our team and, and, and our clients, that traditional piece becomes a, a value add mm-hmm. because not all the shops can do that piece, especially if they are run by younger entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. They might not have that background. But digital truly is central these days. And um, it starts with the website, because Mm -hmm. that is the centerpiece of your digital infrastructure and everything should roll out of that or flow back to it. So depending on the company, which of the tools or techniques or tactics are we going to need to reach that audience that you're trying to reach? Mm-hmm. So for my team, we are, we do, I like to say we do everything but video production. Cool. <laughs> it's just Good. not something Good. that's in our wheelhouse. We yeah. have a couple of partners that we love to work with, Nice. but, um, and we can do a little bit of, uh, you know, you know, putting together a, you know, a little social post or something, but we're not doing, you know, right. 10 minute or, you know, explainer videos. We're not doing that kind right. of stuff, but, um, websites, mm-hmm. email marketing, social media marketing, um, lead generation, um, you know, marketing automation, you know, 
CRMs, all that kind of stuff. That's we are deep, deep, deep into that. Optimization for search engines, we are really deep into that. But I think one of the things that we do well that draws people to us and keeps clients with us is our content marketing. And that goes back to the writing skills and um, you know how content can help you earn better positions in search engines. The pandemic was a wake-up call in many ways. Um, and while websites have always for a long time been essential mm-hmm. to you know marketing your company, I think companies learned during this last two years that if you didn't have a strong web presence, you were further behind the eight ball mm-hmm. during this time as everyone, that's became your life. Mm-hmm. You went digital. Mm-hmm. So what kind of, what are companies coming to you with, with, what kind of issues are they trying to address on their websites? What are you advising them that companies need to consider when they're looking at their digital presence? Yeah, so most companies these days will have a website of some sort, and it will be moderately functional. What it will not be is sophisticated enough to do the things that they're trying to do. For instance, lead generation. Mm. How are we going to generate leads? Done well, your website can be a 24-7 salesperson, but it's got to be set up to do that, right? You've got to have the right content on the website that's going to get seen by the search engines, that's going to bring people to your website. Then you've got to have a great path for them to convert through. Here's an offer. Here's a form. Fill it out. Hey, Mm -hmm. we've got a lead. Then you've got to get that site out in front of enough people that you have enough lead conversions to create a funnel. For every company, that's a different size funnel, right? Some people need, you know, 1,500 leads to get to a sale. Other people need, you know, eight leads to get to a sale. And the sales may be of different sizes. So, you know, there's a sophistication to what the website needs to do, but also working through with the business owner what does the website need to do? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to attract traffic to do X, Y, or Z? Are we trying to, uh, you know, do we want people on our list so we can email them regularly? Or are we just trying to sell them right there? You know, what's the price point? What's the sales cycle? There's so many questions that go into what does your digital infrastructure need to accomplish for you that it's not, a, there's never a one size fits all right. question or, or answer. So we've been going down a lot of the marking path, mm. but I want to talk a little bit about the passion project. No, I'm going to go hands in the yeah, air. <laughs> good, good. All right. So you have been working on, well, for 10 years. The 40 Drink Project. That's right. So talk about how this got started when you turned 40. Right. And what it's turned into a decade later. Yeah. When I turned 40, I was in a weird place in my life where I did not want a big party. And Matt, that will probably amaze you because as you know, uh, you know, I'm an extrovert and I'm a Leo and I love the spotlight. And so, you know, a big party with focused on me would be perfectly in line for people who knew me. But for some reason, it just, it wasn't sitting well with me. So trying to figure out how to celebrate my 40th birthday. And I came up with this crazy idea. I was going to have 40 drinks with 40 people in 40 different places. And each drink would have some connection to my friend or our relationship. So quick example, one of my uh, younger brother's best friends who basically grew up at my house, I didn't know until I was in my 30s that apparently he had a huge crush on me as a kid. So (laughs) when I had a drink with he and his wife, we had something called the grape crush. Ah. (laughs) Right? I love it. Another friend, we used to vacation together out on Block Island. And so, um, and I was there when he met his wife on Block Island. And so the three of us had a drink. We had a sea breeze. So, you know, just so anyway, and what happened was I thought this was going to be my my favorite word, this is going to be a ridiculous way to celebrate my birthday. <laughs> and it was going to help me extend my birthday for who knew how long, however long it took me to, you know, make dates with 40 people. But what ended up happening that I did not expect was that it completely and totally changed my life. Wow. The project. 
it it wasn't just that I was having a drink with these people. It was that I was having a visit with these people. Mm-hmm. And I pulled people from every part of my life, a grammar school, high school, college, different work you know, experiences. Um, I had one with Mark LaLiberty from yeah. the magazine, uh, from our days at the magazine. Um, you know, and... What would just happen again organically was that we would reflect on when we were close, when we were friends, when we were together, you you know, that sort of whatever period of time we had been the tightest. And there were some people who, who reflected back things on me that not only blew my mind, but also kind of like uh, just sort of crumbled the foundation of who I thought I was. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. There was, there were two women who I went to grammar school, high school with, and I had a drink with them. And one of them reflected back to me that she moved into town when we were in the summer before fourth grade, and she moved in up the road from me. Now, how a nine-year-old gets town gossip that says there's a house with three little girls who've moved in up the street... I don't know how I knew that, but where I lived, it, I have two younger brothers and it was all boys in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. So it was a lot of boy energy. <laughs> and one day I put my dog on a leash and purported to take the dog for a walk. And I walked up to this girl's house and I basically loitered outside on the, you know, out in front of the driveway until an adult saw me and sent the girls out to meet me. <laughs> So this was, you know, so Ginny's reminding me of this story, which I had forgotten and, you know, ha 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 at. That's pretty funny. And I went home and something was sticking with me. And I went, wait, let me look at Google Maps. Her house was a mile and a half from mine. Oh my God. I was Not just a couple of streets over. I was nine years old. I put a dog on a leash as a ruse and walked a mile and a half to make a friend. <laughs> now, I had no idea. In my 20s, in my 30s, I knew I was, a, I, knew I was bold. I knew I was adventurous. Mm-hmm. I knew I was kind of out, outrageous. I had no idea it went back that far. <laughs> I had no idea that it was that ingrained right. in me. So there were things like that that were happening through some of these drinks that really kind of stopped me in my tracks and made me think about made me think about myself and see myself in different ways and and see myself the way these friends and family saw me so my life really changed at 40 um i met my husband that year oh wow um we got married a couple of years later and i know that much before that had we met he might not have been attracted to the person I was, mm. the way he was attracted to the person I had become. Um, so so anyway, 40 drinks ends. It takes a year to do the 40 drinks. Wow. And anytime I tell the story to people, they're like, this is a great story. You sh- this should be a book. This should be a movie. This should be a TV show. This should be, this should be something, right? So for several years, a friend of mine and I worked on a book proposal and we took it out. We took it out to different places, different editors, different publishing houses. I had an agent for a year or so. Hello. Yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> we always got good feedback. Mm. Hey, this is a great idea. It's just not what I do. Take mm. it to this person, right? Oh. So, and and that happened that for the better part of 10 years. Not consistently, but like we'd work mm-hmm. on it and then we'd shop it and then it'd sit for a year and then we'd work on it and then we'd shop it. Mm. Last summer, I took a course, um, online course, just a marketing course that was kind of Outside of what I usually do, it was a lot of different things that you see a lot of these mm, the influencers and stuff doing, right? So communities and um, courses and podcasts and stuff that I don't do for my clients. Mm-hmm. And so I, I took this course thinking, oh, I'm going to work through this project related to my business. And a couple of weeks in, I went, wait, what? Wait, I could, what, if I, what if I looked at the 40 Drinks project through this lens and when I'm taking it out to look to be a published book, I have to go through gatekeepers. Mm. But if I'm going to start a podcast, there's no gatekeepers. Yeah. All I got to do is get a microphone mm-hmm. and, you know, someplace quiet to record. So first I thought, okay, let me do 
the 40 Drinks podcast, the way I approached the project, but that's really just focused on me and that might be 40 episodes. But as it turns out, I'm not the only one that has this major transformational experience around turning 40. It's actually quite common that people have transitions between 35 and 45. So if I'm just focusing on me, it's maybe a 40 episode podcast. Mm-hmm. But if I take the if I take that focus and I turn it outward and I start talking to other people about their transitions, well, geez, it's nearly infinite. Yeah. yeah. So wow. Yeah. So what are some of the stories that you had told on your podcast? Who are some of the people that, and what, what, or maybe what are some ones that stand out for you either because of the power of it or the lesson they learned or it resonated? That's a tough question to answer because most of them have resonated with me. And, and from what I'm hearing from people I know, people who are listening to it, it's, there's so many consistencies. There's so many things we keep hearing over and over and over again in most of the episodes. One is should. People do what they think they should Mm. through their 20s and their 30s. And then they get sick and tired of doing what they should do. And they also build um, an amount of trust in themselves, in their own experience, in their own counsel and guidance. And so instead of looking to an outside authority to say, should I do this or should I do that? They're actually now making their own decisions that they feel really strong and comfortable in. One of the women um, that I spoke to, um, she she decided that she was going to have a baby on her own. She turned 40 and the window was closing. And so she said, you know what? I want to do it. I'm going to do it. And she's now four or five months pregnant. Yay. And I talked to her before she did it. So, <laughs> um, so she was talking about the decision and she had made the decision. She just hadn't done mm-hmm. the exercise yet. So um, I, I talked to a woman who lost three of the most important people in her life in her 30s. She just, mm. she thought her 30s were cursed. And so her, you know, her episode was really about dealing with grief and how she wanted to enter her 40s in a way that was standing a little bit more in her power than being that sort of victim of loss. Um, And I've told the story a a number of ways. One of my favorites is uh, my friend Susan Osborne from Be Consulting, Be Image Consulting. She she's got a great story about like she was like 38 and Matt I don't know if you remember Susan mm-hmm. she used to own the spa very stylish very fab and when she was about 38 she was drawn to this pair of really ugly old school Birkenstocks and she couldn't imagine why but she bought them and mostly she put them in her closet they were kind of artwork for her for a while <laughs> and you know she'd wear them occasionally and but it was the beginning of trusting herself and making a transition from what she was supposed to wear. I'm doing Mm -hmm. air quotes under Mm -hmm. supposed to Mm -hmm. what she was supposed to wear as an entrepreneur to what was truly her authentic self and how she really wanted to show up in the world. And of course, Matt, you know, I love clothes and I love style and all of that stuff. So we were, we talked about clothes and, you know, it was, it was a great way to frame the conversation of, you know, that 35 to 45 transition. So, but there have been, there've been a lot of great conversations. And now, I mean, you've been going through some transitions. You're, you, you've gone through some health transitions, mm-hmm. which you talked about. Mm-hmm. You're now entering your fifties, which mm-hmm. is that, ne- you know, another big next phase of life. Yeah. You moved your business, you bought a building, I moved did. your business into. Yeah. Um, so as you do this podcast where you're talking to other people about transitions, how do you reflect on where you are in your own transition? And what are some of the lessons that you're learning as you go into this next phase? I for so long chased what I thought might have been the right pathway to, you know, and you're never guaranteed anything, but I wanted to do something with this. I was passionate about it. I chased a pathway. It didn't work. So now I'm coming at it again with a completely different mindset, with a completely different focus, and I get to be who I am in these conversations. I mean, Matt, this this 
encompasses everything, right? I have a journalism degree. I, I was trained how to interview and ask questions. I am an extrovert. I love talking to people. <laughs> um, it, it sort of puts all those things together. I get to have conversations with people I've never met before and ask them really meaty, meaningful, interesting questions. I get to be curious about other people's lives. And honestly, as I'm, and we're, I think, 16 episodes in, so four months in. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And and I, I'm, I'm starting to see, I'm starting to, you know, put the connections together of, you know, the dots that are, are that are aligning and, and almost creating a, a, I don't know, a, a pathway, you know, a, a, a how-to transition kind of uh, approach to, you know, there's things that I learn in every conversation and things that, that I, you know, oh, I got to remember that because it's so, it's such a great nugget. And I want to put them all together into some sort of framework that other people can use them. I don't know if that's an ebook or I mm-hmm. don't know. I, I don't know. Right now I'm just putting bricks in the wall. And if I go back to success being successful in my business, I really have to just trust in the journey and I have to just keep putting my bricks in the wall and I know a hundred percent the answer is going to show up for me. So what is it that is sort of the next step from the podcast? I'm not sure yet. I know there's something but it will it will show itself to me at some point soon. Very very nice. Um, this has been such a, a great conversation, and, and you're an, a natural storyteller of all stories. Um, before we go, however, I'm gonna like break the rules on timing here. I heard a little story about a turtle. <gasps> And I want to hear the full story, and I bet our guests probably do too, or our, our, our listeners rather do too. So um, tell us the story about the turtle, and then we'll wrap. Oh, you guys <laughs> want to hear about Max? I, um, my freshman year in college, I was in an awful, awful relationship. The only good thing that came out of it was that this boyfriend bought me a tortoise. I don't know why. I think I had been saying I wanted a turtle. I don't even recall saying that. Anyway, I got this tortoise, and we named him Maximilian Schell, after the German actor, of course. Of course. (laughs) So Max and I um, were a team, and uh, we were living in Boston. I was living in an apartment where I was living by myself, but I didn't really want to I didn't really want to show that I was living by myself. So on the mailbox, it was Stephanie McLaughlin and Max Shell. <laughs> and on my uh, answering machine, that's how long ago this was, on my answering machine, it's like, hi, you've reached Steph and Max. We're not home right now. <laughs> so I wanted it to be, and I had a girlfriend living in New York at the time who would send mail to Max. She would oh send God. postcards to Max. So one day in the mail, Max gets a summons for jury duty. <laughs> From the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Oh, my God. And, of course, I think this is hysterical. I call my best friend, who is a columnist for the Boston Globe, and mostly just tell him, like, ha-ha, this happened. This is ridiculous. Well, he puts his journalist hat on, and he figures he's got to report out how this happened. Mm -hmm. So he goes and reports out how this happened. And remember I said I worked for Tom Menino for Mm -hmm. five years? So he called the Commonwealth, you know, figured out where, you know, where did they get the information from? They got it from the city of Boston. He calls the city of Boston and the woman who was the um, the chair of, I don't know, the election commission or the voting department, whatever it was at the time, he was telling her the story and she said, oh, this isn't our Stephanie McLaughlin, is it? And he was like, yeah. And she's like, tell her not to do this to us. And I was like, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. You sent the turtle. Right. Summons. Here's what happened. They did, um, um, they did a census. I knew it. And the census that they did was looking at the mailboxes. Mailboxes, <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. So the city of Boston, sorry, guys, the city of Boston did this census. They looked at all the mailboxes. They qualified him and sent his name to the state. Oh, And then his name came up in the lottery. God. And um, and he got called. <laughs> Were you tempted to bring him to jury duty? <laughs> so wow. my friend Adrian wrote a column about this. Of course, the, my friends at the city were not happy, but he wrote a column about this. And the day the column the day the column dropped, I had calls by like eight eight a.m. I had calls from like all three Boston networks, and uh, over the next week, I did interviews 
all, like I did interviews for the city. I did them at like BBC out of London, some radio station out of Seattle. We made Newsweek and the National Enquirer. Wow. So Max had his own uh, scrapbook of (laughs) of coverage. Um, Yeah. And we made a couple of like year end roundups too. Um, It was, it was kind of wild. And we were going to bring him and there was this big, you know, what the big question was, what am I going to say when I send the card back? And I think I finally chose uh, does not speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, Stephanie McLaughlin, you are um, a hoot and you've got great energy. You've got great experience. You're doing great stuff. Thank you so much for for joining us. It's really been a pleasure to meet you. Um, And of course, Stephanie also plays the role of principal at Savoie Fair Marketing and Communication. Stephanie, thanks so much. Thanks, Nathan. For joining us. It's been a blast. And now the buzz. All right, Matt. So I found um, an interesting article um, by way of the Wall Street Journal uh, entitled, What to Name a New Company? Experienced Entrepreneurs Play to Emotions, right? Mm-hmm. First of all, what are, what are, I mean, like if I say name, you know, name three companies, what are the, what are the companies that, that you would think of first? Apple immediately comes Apple. to mind. Okay, right. Which shouldn't work. Right, no. They're a computer company. Does it tell us what they do? Nothing. No, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, uh, like Samsung. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, maybe it means something in another language, but I don't know what the hell it means. <laughs> um, Savoir Faire Marketing and Communications from our guest today. Yes. We know what they do. And, but we don't, what we didn't do, and maybe we'll ask her another time when she's back, but the, the origin of Savoir Faire, right? Um, so they take something maybe that has meaning to them and put it into the name of their business. A la, by the way, Cardinal Consulting. Well, do you consult for birds? No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> are you from St. Louis? No, I'm not. Um, but so it is in a name. And, and I think, you know, playing to emotions um, it, within this article, they, they, uh, they're talking about different names um, like, a, you know, the cash flow simulator, or um, be your own boss, you know? Right, because well, part of what the article is about is that there's a, a debate over, do you go for a name that is more cognitive and right. tells you what it is that you do, or right. do you go for the buzzy, emotional... Yeah. Speaks to the emotions. Yeah, something yeah. that's going to, to, to elicit an emotional reaction from people. And what they were saying is that um, the uh, younger entrepreneurs... Uh, tended to go with that cognitive, like mm-hmm. I'm going to name my company. You know, I'm a new entrepreneur. I want people to know what my company does. Yeah, and that and it's going to be in the name. Mm-hmm. Whereas the serial entrepreneurs and the more experienced ones, they want that buzzy, emotion-getting mm-hmm. name out there. And so, you know, which is the way to go? Is the question. Uh- Right. And that is the question, right? Because I don't know that there was in this article anyway, and through the study that they did, um, specifically a, uh, a specific answer to that question, as it were. But that's what we're buzzing about this week. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. Check out the Cardinal blog and learn about our services at cardinalconsultingnh.com. We're on social at Cardinal Consulting NH. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a joint production of Business New Hampshire Magazine and Cardinal Consulting. <laughs>